Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys again this morning and get to look at at Esther uh, chapter 8. By the way, just a fun fact for you, uh, the longest verse in the Bible is found in this chapter. So that's a, a fun fact if you're playing a game with Dan Russell that you'll want to know, just to let you know, because he asks you things like that at times. But Esther 8 verse 9, uh, we'll come to it a little bit later. We may read over it, and you won't even think about it as being the longest verse, but there you go. There's a fun fact for you. Esther 8, 9, the longest verse in the Bible. We, uh, we have problems in life at times, right? But there is no problem too big for God to solve. Do you believe that? That was pretty pathetic. So let's try that again. There is no problem too big for God to solve. Do you believe that? Okay, that's, that's better. Um, might even be a resounding yes at the end. We'll see. But Esther found that out. We know so far as we've gone through this story, Mordecai has found that out, and Haman found that out as he tried to create a problem for uh, the, uh, the Jews, the Israelites, and God, uh, God dealt with him on that. So uh, we have God-sized problems today. And by God-sized problems, I mean they're problems that only God can solve. They're so big that when you begin to think about them and you begin to see them and how they're playing out in our world, you, you are actually kind of step back and you have to say, you know what, that is such a big problem, I just realized that only God can solve that problem. So a growing epidemic, maybe you've heard about it, it's led to many other things, but a growing epidemic is anxiety in our world today. Uh, so here's just a little bit of a uh, write-up on it. Safety, health, and finances seem to be the greatest source of anxiety, according to certain polls out there. 68% of respondents said, keeping myself or my family safe and my health made them either somewhat or extremely anxious. 67% said the same of paying my bills or expenses, and then politics or interpersonal relationships followed at 56%. And 48%. So those are the things that people are stressing out about and anxiety is growing. Well, that then leads to other things such as depression. It leads to substance abuse. It might lead to uh, sexual immorality. It leads to confusion. We know that there's gender confusion and a lot of other uncertainties that people as they're growing up, they're trying to find their identity and all types of things seem to be kind of going back to this root problem of anxiety. And then ultimately what you see happening a lot is the suicide rate is growing because people get to a point and they say, I can't take it anymore, therefore we'll just get rid of this life altogether. There are people who have, um, and I'm not trying to downplay it at all, there are those that have mental um, health concerns and they need care and help, but there's also a lot of people that are walking around just hopeless because they don't know Christ. And you and I have the greatest answer to people's hopelessness. Do you believe that? I mean, what better can help a person understand their sin and their sinful condition than the love of Christ? You begin to see who Christ is and what he's done for you, and you begin to see his power and the power of the resurrection, which, by the way, we always need to mention in 
the gospel message and the gospel presentation that not only did Christ die for your sins, but that he rose from the dead. And in believing that he rose from the dead, he brings you to new life. And that new life gives you eternal hope. So as we think about those who are, are struggling with anxiety, maybe those who are struggling with depression, struggling with thoughts of, I don't even know why I'm continuing to live in this world today, we need to bring them back to Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done. And guess what? That's going to take courage and belief and faith that God puts people in your path at certain times for such a time as this, as we read in Esther. So that's why we've talked about Esther, living with courage backed by providence. God is working. He's bringing people along our path. He is is helping us understand hopefully more about who he is. And then he brings people in our path so that we can share with him what we're learning. We can share with him the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which ultimately is the greatest hope. But it takes courage to do that. So we're going to continue to read through this passage together, this book together, and see just how God encourages us to do that. All right, sound like a plan? All right, well, let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father, we thank you that we are not alone in this world, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ to, to go uh, into this world and, and try to understand and make sense of it, that we have each other to dig into your word. And Father, that we have your word. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. When so many people are asking the question, when is God going to speak to me? We know that you already have. And it's there in your word, and we believe it, and it's true. And it's as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. And we believe that with all of our heart. And so, God, we pray as we dig into your word that the truth, the things we see in it, the principles we see in it, the characteristics of you and how you love people and are gracious and compassionate, that would just flow out and we would see who you are. We'd see who we are and how much we desperately need you. Thank you that you never leave us. Thank you that you never forsake us. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just as a reminder where we're at in this story so far, we've been introduced to all the main characters. We've seen the king, the most powerful king on the face of the earth at the time. We've seen Esther, the queen, who became queen because Vashti was uh, a, a naughty girl at the beginning. Okay, She was disobedient to the king, and so she was uh, displaced, and Queen Esther was put in her place. And then Mordecai is Esther's uncle, okay? And, uh, and he is a key player in this story as well. And then we have Haman, the villain, who is trying to destroy the Jewish people, the Israelites. And uh, both Esther and Mordecai are Israelites, and so they, as the story continues to unfold, are trying to save the Jewish people. And last chapter we saw how uh, Esther was courageous and spoke to the king about it. And the king realized how bad Haman was, and so he had Haman killed Now, the problem is Haman had an edict that he already wrote, that he already signed with the signet ring of the king, and it was already put in place. Haman was gone, but the edict was not. And so we pick up the story there, and we see in verses really 1 through 12, we'll start there, and then we'll continue through. It says, that same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Haman, we know from past portions of this story was a pretty wealthy guy. So not only did Queen Esther become the queen, but she and her family, Mordecai's family and so forth, basically inherited the, uh, to Haman's estate. 
Okay, he was the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. So Mordecai was already in good standing with the king because he had revealed this plot that would kill the king. And so uh, he had already taken him through the city and had Haman say, this is, is what's done for the man who the king would want to honor. So Mordecai was already in good standing, but now even more so. So the king removed his signet ring and he, that he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and then Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Okay, so the story is getting better and better for both Esther and Mordecai. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. Notice here, she doesn't do what Vashti did earlier and be disrespectful toward the king. She shows great honor and respect towards him and his position. So she begs him, and the king extended the gold scepter toward her. So she got up and stood before the king, and she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, if the matter seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are all in the king's provinces. So, so let there be something that would revoke that edict. Well, there's a problem with that. And we'll see that when we get to verse 8. But the problem is once the king signs something and says this goes out into the whole kingdom, it stands. And it was the Persian law that they couldn't revoke it. But she begs and asks really for the impossible. She goes on, For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? Really, in in reality, both Esther at this point and Mordecai were probably safe. No one's probably going to touch the queen even though she was a Jew. Um, But she pleads, uh, pleads for her her other, or other relatives, her family, the Jewish people at this point, and asked for them. So King Ahasuerus said to Esther, the queen, and to Mordecai, the, the Jew, Look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. So write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews, and then seal it with the royal signet ring, a document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. So there it tells you, there's the law that was written for the Persians. They cannot revoke this law once it's put into place. And so they do that. On the the 23rd day of the third month, by the way, this is verse 9 here. So uh, how many points is it worth, Dan? Do you remember? 50 points a word. So if you ever have trivia, you need to know what longest verse is and how many, anyhow, you get the point. So here you go. On the 23rd day of the third month, that is the month Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And then we get told what was written. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edict with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. Now, I think that's written in there just so we understand that the king backed this up. 
Okay, not only did he have a signet ring, but he knew how important it was to get it out there as quickly as he could. He gave him the best of the horses to say, get this word out there because it needed to be done quickly. So the king's edict gave uh, the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves. Okay, this is what was written. To destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and, and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of Kinahazras, on the 13th day of the 12th month of the month Adar. So he, he tells them, you can, at this point, defend themselves. Now, I'm going to kind of read between the lines a little bit here, because I don't think we maybe catch on. But as he is writing this and he is sending it out, one of the things he's telling them is, yes, you can defend themselves. The other thing he's telling them is that the edict that Haman sent out, which beforehand would have led a lot of people to believe that not only were people allowed to attack the Jews, but also the king's armies would be attacking the Jews. When this was written... Now you have the pressure of the king's army is, is kind of pulled back. So you know that the king is not going to be attacking the Jews, that it's just left up to people who may want to, on their own, on their own accord, go out and attack the Jewish people. And then the Jewish people are given the right by the king to go ahead and defend themselves. So he's saying, in essence, you guys need to take some time Build some forces up and get ready because you still will be attacked. That's what the edict said. Haman's edict was already written, was already put into place. But we want to get this out there as quickly as we can so you can be ready to defend yourselves. He says this would take place on the same day. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 13, this is the letter that Haman wrote. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people. That's what the edict that Haman wrote said, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day. So basically what Mordecai did was write the same thing, just in reversal. And it was on the same day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. So this goes out. A copy of the text was issued as law throughout every province. It was distributed to all peoples so that the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste. Again, kind of that same idea. They needed fast horses. They were given the king's horses to go out in haste on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. You get the sense that this needed to be done right away. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Now, when it gets out there and people begin to read it and people begin to hear it, this is what happens. Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal purple and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen in the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. When Mordecai's edict went out, the people of Susa rejoiced. They were excited about it. Look at that in contrast to what happened when Haman's edict went out. Back in chapter 3, verse 5, 15, the couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued on the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. So when Haman's edict went out that all the Jews should be killed and annihilated and wiped off the face of the earth, the whole city was in confusion. But when Haman's, or excuse me, when Mordecai's edict goes out that the Jews can defend themselves, then everybody was rejoicing. 
But it doesn't stop there. Verses 16 and 7 say something quite interesting. It says, And the Jews then celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached, joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday. And then read this. Look at this. And many of the ethnic groups who were not Jews of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. Sometimes people look back in the Old Testament, they say the Old Testament has a a nation of people and they were not out there to evangelize and tell other people about God. That's not really true. They were supposed to be set apart, and by being set apart, they would be a witness in a nation that would demonstrate to them what it looked like to follow and submit and obey to God. And hopefully other people would see that, and that that would actually bring people to faith in their Creator. We can go back into the time when uh, the, the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, and it'll say there that many of the Egyptians came with them because they believed in this great God. And here, once again, you see when God does something, when God takes a God-sized problem and he creates a God-sized solution, that there really is like this God-sized salvation that happens. People got saved. People believed in this God. Now, it's a different kind of salvation than you and I. We believe in Jesus Christ, who is our Messiah. They were believing in the God of Israel. It's the same God But we know now today that the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Savior, would be Christ. It's an amazing thing. And so that's really our big idea for the day. There's God-sized problems, and those God-sized problems have God-sized solutions resulting in God-sized salvations. When we address and we see our problems in the world, and you begin to see how God works in people's lives and He gives salvations or solutions, you'll actually see people responding in salvations. So there's a few lessons I want to just kind of take out of what we've read so far as we look at all of Esther and see really three things and three lessons that maybe we can apply to our lives. So the first one is simply this. People may go, but the problem may stay. Maybe you've ran into this in your own life where you know that there's certain personalities, there's certain people out there that you just kind of butt heads with at times and have tensions with at times or they say certain things and you start to think to yourself, boy, if I could just maybe get away or go somewhere different or do something, then all that problem would disappear, right? And then you go to another place, you might even move out of the state, you might go to a different job, and what happens? You mean another person that's very similar to that person that you didn't get along with before. So that's one thing that you'll see at times in life. Or sometimes you'll run into issues where <coughs> people may have made a difficult uh, life for you or tension or something like that, and then they disappear, but it's still there. And so people may go like Haman, but the problem may stay. And there's a reason for that, and I think we see that in Ephesians chapter 6. Here's what it says. Finally, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on them the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. By the way, at the end, I'm going to challenge you to read this throughout the week. You can read more about the armor of God. But verse 11 and 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against 
the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Sometimes we, we see people as the enemy, but in reality, the enemy is the spiritual forces. Satan knows our weaknesses, right? And he knows what gets us down, or he knows what challenges us along the way. He knows what will keep us from pursuing Christ, and he puts those things in our path at times. I don't know how he does it. There's always that question. You've got God's sovereignty, God's providence at work. You have our free will at work, and you have this enemy of, of, of God out there. And he's creating difficulties for God followers. But our struggle is against these, these authorities and these, these powers, these spiritual forces that are out there that are trying to keep us from pursuing God. And so we may at times have people that will disappear from our life, but the issues remain. So we've got to learn to work through that. And in this story, they did come to a solution, but solutions, even though they're possible, are not always easy, right? And in this story, you see that. So even though they came to a solution, the solution was, guess what, guys? We need to get ready for war. It's not like it will just disappear, even though they wanted to. Even though Esther came to the king and said, can you just revoke it? Can you take it away? The king says, no, I can't do that. The, the, the Persian law says I can't. If I were to rewrite it, I would lose you know, some of my, my power in the kingdom. People would begin to doubt me as a leader and so forth because I'm rewriting the laws and and so he says, no, I can't. I can't rewrite the law, but we can write another law that would give some freedom for the Jews to be able to defend themselves. That's not an easy solution, but it is a solution. Solutions are possible, but they're not necessarily easy. Colossians 1.24 says this, Now I rejoice in my suffering for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body that is the church. Now, Paul's talking to the church in Colossae, and what he's telling them here is Jesus Christ has already come, and he's, he's suffered, he's bled, and he's died, and he's taken God's wrath upon himself. He has suffered the most of anybody for sins. But as time goes by, and we've had 2,000 years of history now between Christ and the church today, there is still a working that the church needs to do. The church needs to go out there. The church needs to suffer and be persecuted and take some of these afflictions. And Paul was doing that. As he was going out there, he was beaten, he was in prison, he was uh, mocked, laughed at, whipped, all those types of things. He was suffering for the church to get the gospel out. It's not that Christ didn't suffer enough for us. It's just simply the fact that as we are going out there to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to be difficult at times. You have people that are glad to accept the gospel of Christ, and there are people that will not want to hear it at all. And they may persecute. Now, in America, we don't see the persecution quite as strongly, but we might, you know, have a negative post on Facebook if we make a proclamation of Christ. We might have somebody laugh at us. We might have somebody call us a fool. We might lose a friendship in the midst of it. There are afflictions 
that we suffer. And it's not easy living out our faith. And it's not easy telling a person who may be struggling from anxiety or depression or just maybe in a life of sin because they find that that's going to be where they get their joy. It's not easy to approach them and say, you know what? God doesn't want you to do that. Instead, he wants you to focus on Christ and live for Christ. Trust him that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. It's not going to be easy to say that to people. But it's what we're supposed to do. Solutions are possible, but not always easy. And then the last thing, people do respond favorably when they see God work. That's what you see at the end of that story, right? God was able to fix this problem, not an easy, pro- easy solution, but he fixes it. And from that, people come to faith in God. They believe, wow, God did something there. He's a powerful God. First Timothy, Paul's writing to a guy named Timothy, and, uh, and he has a few things to say to him. Timothy was a, a pastor, a teacher, and so he says this to him. He says, until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Don't neglect the gift that is in you, because it was given to you through prophecy, with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things, be committed to them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And Paul's telling Timothy here, as you live out your faith in front of other people, as you're faithful to God's Word, and you're living out truth, and you're persevering, that not only will you see God working in your own life, but other people will see God working in your life, and that will bring more people to salvation. But we've got to be faithful. So in our life, in our world, we can get, at times, anxious. We can get stressed. We can get worried. We can begin to become discouraged, depressed. Think to ourselves, we can't go on any further. We can have hard times, maybe at work, maybe you get laid off, maybe you can't pay your bills, maybe your marriage is struggling and falling apart, maybe you're struggling with your kids, maybe you're asking the question almost every single day, why God? Why are these things happening? But your perseverance in the faith speaks volumes to other people. And so the encouragement we get, I think, in this story over and over and over again is that God is providentially working behind the scenes. Esther and Mordecai are living with courage, saying, we believe God is is sovereign through it all. And because of that, God does some amazing things. He doesn't do that every day. He didn't do that, you know, where he writes an edict, but, but... He comes along in time, and at just the right time, and just the right moment, he writes an edict, and it speaks volumes to people. And that's the way it works in our own lives at times. Just the right time, God brings someone along your path. At just the right time, God gives you the words to say, and you're able to see him work it out in other people's lives. So, I was thinking through this last week and some of the things that, 
that just God has been kind of teaching me. And I began to realize as I was reading this passage and kind of studying it, that as you go through it, it talks to a pastor and it says to him, hey, you need to live out your faith in front of people. So I started thinking through, okay, God, what are you, what are you really challenging me with? And one of the things that just kind of came up maybe in the last month or so, and I had the opportunity just this last week, by the way, um, life groups, again, just kind of a quick plug there. Probably for the first time in, I guess, since we've started, we sat down with our life group this last week, and I just kind of opened up a little more transparent. It's like, you know what? There's some things I'm really struggling with. Started sharing it with them, and I was so blessed to have a group there that prayed with me and said, you know what? We understand. We're here to encourage you and walk with you through this. That's awesome. So I'll give you a little snapshot about what happened. I'll start with a story because I like analogies. It helps me understand things a little bit better. Back when I uh, lived over in Washington, I had a friend who liked to train horses. And so he would, he would invite me out to go horseback riding. And I was like, can we just take a motorcycle or something? Because I don't like animals that much. But I do like dogs, and then that's about the extent of it. Uh, so he invites us to go out, and, and he, we go out. I mean, most people would, would want to do this all the time. And I was like, that's yeah, okay. But we, we went out to the river. There was the beach there. On one side, there's the river. You know, on the other side, there's trees. The leaves are falling. It's in the fall. And it's, you know, it's a beautiful setting. I'm with a guy, which is kind of weird. But, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He's a friend of mine. So his name's Sean. And he says, so, anyhow, I just want to get rid of the romantic side of it. That's what I really want to say. So, but he does, he says, you know, let's, let's go riding. And so if we get out there and we get the horse ready. And he's one of these kind of guys. He's a trainer. So he trains the rider and he trains the horse and everything. And part of his training is, you know, you need to learn to saddle up the horse. So I'm over there, you know, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, saddle up the horse. and Get on the horse, and we start going down the beach, and there's a log there, and so we're going to jump over the log. And as soon as we do, I start to go sideways like this. And if you've ever been in that situation where you're starting to go sideways, and you actually like put more weight down on one side, it actually makes it worse because it pushes the saddle down even more. So I start to do that, and boom, I'm just on the ground, flat on the ground. And, uh, and he sees me, you know, he's, he's riding in front of me, but turns around, he's laughing. Fortunately, the horse stops, which I was thankful for. So I get up, you know, it hurts a little bit. I'm like, but I'm, I pop up fast because I'm a guy. That's what you do. So, you know, you pop up quickly and, and you get up and I straighten up the saddle a little bit, tighten where I think it needs to be tightened, hop back on it, go a little bit further, jump over another log, same thing. Boom, hit on the ground. Okay. This time it hurts a little bit more. This time my friend's laughing a little bit more. And this time I'm a little more mad, right? Like, first time I was, okay, it's funny. So he comes back and he helps this time, you know, tighten it up, get it all cinched up and everything, get back on and ride the horse fine. So in the past, I've used that story. Some of you might have heard that story. I've used that story just to say, get back up on the horse, right? It's a good illustration to say, just keep getting back up, keep riding. What happens when you keep falling off over and over again? Pretty soon you're like, I don't want to do this anymore, right? And you get discouraged and you get worn out, like this is not right. And that's kind of what I told my life group this last week, is there are times in life where I go through this series where I just get discouraged and I'm like, I don't want to get back on the horse again. And you don't feel like you're motivated, you get discouraged, depressed, and you start to think to yourself, 
why am I doing this? Why, God? And so, like I say, it was a great opportunity to share that with life group and just say, you know what, there's a lot of things as a pastor sometimes or as a father sometimes where you just start to feel like, hey, there's things that aren't going the way you want them to go, and you wonder, okay, God, are you doing something? Are you teaching me? You get discouraged, wondering what's going on, and God is, is working in your life, but you don't always see it. And so you get discouraged. Well, one of the things going through life group and talking with them and just reflecting on Scripture and in prayer, one of the things that really stands out that this verse brings to the surface as well is that key word in there, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. What's the next word? Persevere. God's not so interested in me being perfect and living up to the world's standards and living up to all these other thoughts that are out there that sometimes you feel you can't measure up to, what he's interested in is that you're just faithful, right? And you persevere through the hard times, and you work through them, because in that perseverance, you speak the truth of Christ, and you say, I will not give up. I believe wholeheartedly that he died on the cross and rose from the dead for my sins and that he is my hope, not this world. I don't need to be reminded of that at times. And I think that's what the people here in this story saw that came to faith in God at that moment is they looked at Israel and Israel's history, and Israel was a great nation at one time, and Israel was, was growing and succeeding, and everything was going their way, and then they disobeyed, and then they had a, another nation come in, and they were pulled into captivity, and then they were brought and dropped into this, this area, and, and you had a king, several Gentile kings over them, and, and eventually people are like, well, obviously God took, their, took his hand off of, of Israel. And then something like this happens. And the world says, oh, wait a minute. Maybe God does still love them. And that's what happens in our life too at times. We go through life and people outside, people might even start to criticize and go, hey, look, obviously your God doesn't like you anymore. Things aren't going the way you, you know, it should go for you. Um, your marriage is hurting. You lost your job. Your kids are a wreck, whatever. And, you know, and they're picking your life apart. And you start to feel like, maybe God is mad at me too. But you persevere. You're faithful. And somewhere along the way, God shows up, shows his love, and it becomes a testimony for other people. So God does amazing things at times. And we have huge problems that come our way. And God has his solutions and when people see his solutions, they respond favorably. And so con some concluding thoughts as we kind of come to an end here is simply this. One, follow Jesus, be faithful, and let God take care of the rest. Persevere. And boldly live out your faith in front of others. And just watch and see what God does. He can do amazing things. I, I think almost every... I don't know if every one of them, but, but a lot of the times I've seen people come to faith in Christ. It's not because I sat down and gave them a gospel message. I mean, usually that's part of it. 
but it's usually because I was walking with them, working with them, living out faith in front of them, and they came to a point they said, wow, your, your faith is, is real. It's, I can see it. It's genuine. And I want some of that too. You live out your faith in front of people, and people see it. So boldly live out your faith in front of others. Some things you can be reflecting on as we close here. One, what is your God-sized problem, and who are you leaning on to fix it? Do you need to make a confession regarding your problem? What's your God-sized problem? So I shared with you a little bit of mine. Maybe you have a story to share as well. Things that you see in your life that you're trying to take control of. Things you see in your life that, that maybe are getting you down. Maybe you're similar in that way. You're discouraged. And you have all these ideas. For me, uh, and I've shared it quite a bit. Maybe you've seen it already. Obviously, Haman struggled with pride. Uh, I think all of us can say, yes, we struggle with pride. I certainly struggle with pride. And one of the things I would say I'm really proud about is the ability to make people happy. I can oftentimes do that. I can usually take a situation and kind of clean it up a little bit or encourage them a little bit or try to say the right things at the right time, or, you know, and I can get to that point. Well, what happens when you can't anymore? Well, now all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow. You're humbled, right? My problem is, is I, I try to do too much, and I try to take God's power away from him and control it myself. That's a God-sized problem. That needs to change in my heart, right? What's your God-sized problem, and who are you leaning on to fix it? So you might be like, man, if you're, this is the first time you've ever been here, by the way, you might be like, this pastor's a mess. And it's true. Okay, I'm a mess. I will not hide that at all. But I will tell you that I love the Lord. And I will be faithful to love him and love my wife, love my family, my kids, and love his church. Because that's what he's called me to do. So I need to make confession, and I need help from him. My guess is I'm not alone here. We all could use a little bit of help. So what's your God-sized problem, and who are you leaning on to fix it? And do you need to make a confession regarding your problem? Go ahead and make it today. The last one, read Ephesians 6. We like to give a little bit of homework. I think it's helpful at times. I've gotten some positive responses anyhow from it. But if you want to jot this down, read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. That's where it talks about the armor of God. You can do that several times this week to help you prepare for spiritual battle. We are living in a spiritual battle. And God, God knows your weaknesses. But don't forget that Satan also knows your weaknesses. And he will attack those and try to discourage you, knock you down, knock you off that horse, and keep knocking you off of it. So be prepared. So read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, several times, maybe several times a day, maybe once a day, whatever you feel like you need to do that. And then I just want to challenge you. Um, we have an opportunity this morning. I'm going to do it this morning. I have to be the the drummer boy. I call myself the big drummer boy. I'm not the little drummer boy. Um, I got to be the, the drummer. But after that, I plan to pray over here on the wings, you know, one of these, and, and pray with those who are praying because I need help. 
I need the body of Christ. And again, I'm grateful for a life group that prays with me and helps me, encourages me, and I'm grateful for a church. I appreciate your prayers. Pray for me. Pray for Pastor Luke. Pray for your leadership team. We had a great leadership retreat this week, and I was really encouraged by it. Your leaders need help. They need prayer. They're a bunch of messed up leaders, too. I think they'd all say that. But together, maybe we make a, a pretty good team. And that's really the goal. Together, I think we make a pretty good church. I'm pretty, pretty pleased with what God's doing here. And I'm proud of, of you guys coming. I know on Sunday mornings you have other things you could be doing, but you come here to worship God together. And that's awesome. That brings great joy in my life. I hope it brings great joy in your life as well. So think about these things. Reflect upon them. We'll close with a song. And if you'd like to join us in prayer, please feel free to come and pray with us this morning.